The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. First Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse number 9. The Apostle says, For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God? Very fitting beginning for our lesson today. The Apostle Paul giving thanks to God for the people that he had won to Jesus Christ and for the faith that they have in him. Now, if you'll open your Bibles to this first letter of Thessalonians chapter 3, for two weeks we've had opportunity to examine the heart of the Apostle Paul and to get a glimpse of the compassion and the love that he had for those that he ministered to, that his heart was burdened for his converts, which led him to earnestly pray for their faith and their well-being. And But the Apostle Paul was a man of prayer, And he knew in his absence from them that the best that he could do for them was to pray for them. And when I say this is the best that he could do, I certainly do not mean that prayer is an inferior method. But I mean it in the sense that that not being with them, praying for them, was the thing that he could do for them that would help them the most at this time. And I believe this is exemplified in the following quote. We will never know... From how much sin we have been saved and how much temptation we have conquered, all because someone prayed for us. Paul couldn't be there, and yet his prayers for them were strongly impactful for their well-being. Now, as marvelous and unique as it was to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm not sure that I'd want to serve in the same way that Paul served. Now, for sure we could say that no one wants to be thrown into prison. No one wants to be uh, beaten and, and have their hands and feet bound and thrown into prison. No one wants that. And there were many perils that Paul experienced as he preached in, in a very hostile and dangerous world. But much more than that were the problems of the personal love and affection that he had for people and the new relationships that he established, that those relationships had to be put on hold. That he would minister in one church where he would uh, win people to the Lord Jesus Christ. He would establish that church and the next thing that he had to do is leave those people and then move on to another place, another preaching point where he would start the process all over again of preaching to people and establishing churches. I think... um, of the scene in Acts chapter 20 when Paul met for the last time with the Ephesian elders. He needed to to leave them and to return to Jerusalem. And so he called the elders to meet with him before he boarded a ship to return to Israel. Now before we read here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, if you would just take your Bible for a minute there and turn to Acts chapter 20. And I'd like to, to read this about this touching scene and see the angst that Paul and the people felt, and especially Paul as he had to leave his converts behind, that he knew wherever he went that he would meet opposition, 
But he said, this opposition to the gospel of Christ, that doesn't trouble me so much. That's not the thing that moves me. But his concern was that he would finish his life with the joy of ministry and preaching the gospel. Now in verses 23 to, uh, 22 to 34, there's much the same record of his ministry at Ephesus that we see at Thessalonica. He spoke of the suffering that he went through. He pleaded for them to live godly lives. He said that he never took advantage of them. He worked with his hands to provide his own necessities. And so his record with the Ephesians was much the same as it was with the Thessalonians. Now, if you look at this parting scene in verse number 36, there's this gut-wrenching feeling of leaving these loved ones behind. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship." Now that, that, I believe, is the worst part of ministry. And that's the part that I don't want to do. Uh, I, I don't want to have to leave people behind and, and then wonder how are they doing? What are their troubles? What are they going through? Is their faith still holding on? I, I, I don't want to be left in that position. I know that Paul didn't like that part of ministry any more than I do, but he knew this. He knew that he could pray. And he knew that the great God of heaven is always there to watch over his people. In these very troubling times, this we can do, we can pray. And we know that God is with us. Now let's return to 1 Thessalonians. We've already seen in the beginning of chapter 3 in our studies that Paul stayed in Athens, and for quite some time he wondered uh, how those in Thessalonica were holding on. He was concerned, had the gospel taken root? Had they truly believed? Did they have faith? And were they continuing to grow in that faith? And so as we looked at the scriptures last week, we, we saw that he sent Timothy back to check on them. And Timothy did, and then he returned to Paul with a glowing report. He said, their faith is alive. They are concerned about you, Paul, as much concerned about you as you are about them. And then they have this great triumvirate of the Christian, of the Christian uh, religion. And that we found in the first chapter is faith, love, and hope. And this is the thing. Those are the things that sustain them. And Paul was elated by that news. And so as soon as he heard it, he sat down to write this letter, this letter of 1 Thessalonians. And, and he did this with euphoria, filling his breast, the great news, swelling in his breast that the Thessalonians were doing very well. Now his heart was then overflowing, and so he couldn't wait to write this down and tell them how he felt. So he says in verse 8, this is the very thing that I wanted to know. This is what makes my life worth living. This makes all the pain and suffering of ministry worth it. We live if you stand fast in the Lord. And then as Paul was so often prone to do, he broke out in praise thanking God in verse number 9. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. And so his praises go up to God because he knows that only God could make this change in their lives. That only God can turn these hell-bent sinners, these pagans, only God can turn these hell-bent sinners 
into heaven-bound saints. Only God could make these people willing to suffer the pains and the persecutions that they must go through because of that faith. Only God can do it because they have the love of Christ in them. And he prays for them. And this last part of this chapter is Paul's prayer for them. It's not the way that we usually pray, although this prayer is not an uncommon one. He prayed as he spoke to them. As he uh, spoke to them, this is a prayer that goes up to God. It's like I might say at the end of a sermon, I pray that, that you'll be safe. I, I pray that you'll have a good week this week. And I pray that God will be with you in all your endeavors for this week. And you understand that as I say that, as I say it to you, this is a prayer that goes up to God. And this is the way that Paul prays in this passage. And we're going to look at this prayer and we'll see the desire of Paul's heart. This is what we would call a pastoral prayer. It's a heartfelt plea to God for his people. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse number 9. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy, for your sakes before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly, that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. William Barclay in his commentary on verses 11 through 13 has a heading that just simply says, All is of God. Now his point is that in Paul's mind, everything is about God. That the way to tackle every problem that we have in life, whether it's big or small, is to go to God. And he said that our tendency is only to go to God for the big stuff. That the small things in our lives we think that, that we can handle. And it's only when there are emergencies, when we're overpowered and overwhelmed with things that we think we can't control, that's when we care to call on God. And he said that leaving God out of any part of our lives is a mistake. That we can never effectively manage anything in our lives without God. And I thought that was a very good, a very good thought. Especially when we're not people of prayer as Paul was. And this is what Paul did. He managed his entire life through prayer. That God was everything to him. And you see him uh, repeat in this prayer. He says, God. And he says, our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, the Lord. And he says, God, our Father. So he doesn't even say five words without mentioning God. And as you see in verse number 10, it's a constant prayer. Later in this same epistle, the same letter that he wrote to them, he says in the fifth chapter, pray without ceasing. And Paul modeled that as he said, I prayed night and day that I might, I might see you. So he was always in contact with God. Now, you have your Bibles there. Just look over there in chapter 2, verse 9, and let me show you something here. He says, For, for ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail... For laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Now there he is speaking of his physical labor. And we wonder, how did Paul work night and day 
And at the same time, he says in our text that he prayed night and day. How does he do both? Well, it helps us to understand what he wrote in that fifth chapter about praying without ceasing, that what he meant by that is that we are to be in contact with God and to commune with God and to do that freely as we go about our day. And he doesn't have in mind that what you must do to pray to God all of the time is just fall down to your knees, put your hands together, look up in the sky and plead with God and pray for Him and have those kinds of moments of prayer. Now, you certainly do need those at times in your life. You need what we might call the closet prayer, where you get alone with God and you just talk with God. But we know that's not possible to do night and day. You can't work night and day and do that night and day. So it helps us to understand what Paul means by praying without ceasing is to have that constant communion and contact with God so that every motive, everything that we do, every thought that we think, we have God in our minds. And that's what Paul means when he says, I prayed night and day. And you remember that Paul said uh, over in Acts 17 as he was teaching in Athens, he, he used this old phrase that, that those pagans were used to hearing uh, about gods, for in him we live and move and have our being. And Paul took that and he applied it to Christianity, and this is so true. In God we live, we move, and we have our being. And so it's remembering that we're always in God's presence. This is what Paul means when he says, praying night and day. And this is just another wonderful aspect of the Christian life, that most people act as if God is nowhere near, that God is out there somewhere beyond the blue, and he's not very interested in the daily trivial stuff that goes on in our lives, that God doesn't really have time for us, and how wrong we are to think that God doesn't want to be bothered with the small details. And you might think that God doesn't see you. And God doesn't know the small details of your life. But I can assure you this. He knows everything that's going on in your life. He sees everything that you do. Every thought that you think. Every action that you take. So Paul didn't believe God's just out there somewhere. To him, God is a father to ask. Yes, he is magnificent. Yes, he is powerful. Yes, he rules. But he's also a loving father. He's a loving father to go to, to ask, who cares to guide his children in all the ways that they should go. So he guides every detail, and you can live your life knowing that God is with you and that he is a present help in every trial, everything that you go through. Now, on this Sunday, as we think about Thanksgiving, you can be thankful that God is a present help in time of trouble. And if you're God's child, yes, he will be with you. And he desires that you acknowledge that he's there and that you can come freely to him and commune with him. Now, before we take a look at, at Paul's petitions in prayer, I, I do want to uh, make another notation here. It's something I think that we need to point out in verse number 11, where he says, Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. In the Greek grammatical construction of this passage, God the Father and Jesus Christ are joined as a plural subject, but with a singular verb. Now, you know that I love to point out the many, the many indications of the equality of God the Father with His Son, Jesus Christ, that they are one in essence, 
And then with the Holy Spirit, they are the triune God. And so if you want to just mark this verse in your Bible, here's another testament to the deity of Jesus Christ. He is fully God. He is not a created being. And that's seen in the, in the Greek construction of the passage. So Paul gives us good, solid doctrine. No matter where you read Paul, you're going to get good doctrine. Yeah, you can just stop and you can look in just about every line of text. And you'll find some great truth that Paul presents. He is a teacher and theologian par excellence. Well, now we want to examine the petitions. What is it that Paul prays for? Well, we see that he prays that he might see them. That's the personal fulfillment of seeing them. That's what he sincerely wanted. But that's not the thing that's chief on his mind. Now, he did want to restore that fellowship to go there and be with them. There's the loss of fellowship. But more than that, it is his desire for their good success as followers of Christ. He did say, we, we live if you stand fast in the Lord. So that's the main thing on his mind. Are you standing fast in the Lord? And I want you to keep that in your mind today. Are we standing fast in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now we notice this prayer has three identifying marks of Christianity that I mentioned. It was first told to us in chapter 1, and that is faith, love, and hope. And it's faith, love, and hope that anchors these petitions of Paul's prayer. Now, if you'll first look at verse number 10, and we only have time today to deal with this first petition of the prayer, it is to see their faces and to do what? To perfect that which is lacking in their faith. Now, let, let's say that in another way, for the sake of, of alliteration, for alliterative, alliterative purposes. This is what we'll call this, to decrease the deficiencies in their faith. To decrease the deficiencies in their faith. That is what Paul prays for in this first petition. Now, although the church had showed that their faith was real and that they were bound to Christ, they are, after all, still new converts. They haven't learned very much. Their faith is not complete. And when we see this word perfect here, that's what it means. It means to complete it. It means to, to fill it out with more knowledge of God and His Word. Now, you remember in chapter 2, verse 13, uh, he said, Paul says, "...the Word of God works effectually in you." That it's the knowledge of the Word of God that does perfect your faith, it completes your faith, it, it sanctifies you, it separates you to God. Listen to this comment. In one sense, faith is a very simple thing, the setting of the heart right with God in Christ Jesus. In another, it is very comprehensive. It has to lay hold on the whole revelation which God has made of His Son. Can I read that part to you again? It has to lay hold on the whole revelation that God has made of His Son. And it has to pass into action through love in every department of life. Now, friends, it is a marvelous thing to know that you're saved. It's a wonderful thing to know that you're on your way to heaven. But once you know these things, all you've done is just whet the appetite of the spiritual man to know more about Christ. There is no Christian that should stop at the knowledge that he is saved. That is, as if the rest of the Bible is just superfluous information. 
And I've heard this, this so many times that somebody says, well, I really don't need to get into all this complicated theology stuff that you always teach and you're always talking about. I don't need that stuff because it raises too many questions. There's just too much to think about. I'm satisfied right where I am and I don't know, need to know more. And I would say that is a tragedy. And I would say that's not biblical. It is not apostolic. It's not in the vein of Paul's letters. It's not the command of the, or the attitude of Christ and the apostles. In short, that is an attitude that is not Christian. It's the attitude that we don't need to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit who uses this very Word of God to separate us to God. And so if you think that the Bible, with all of its doctrines, is TMI then don't imagine that you're going to get very close to God or that your prayers will be effective like Paul's prayers are effective. You can't do it. The Bible says you can't do it. God says you can't do it. And so if you have time for everything but to lay hold on the whole revelation that God has made of His Son, then you're not going to be close to God. And so Paul prays that you would get out of that senselessness, out of that attitude, and that you would grow in the faith and that your faith would be complete. In other words, if your attitude is that your faith has advanced as far as it needs to go, you are a failed Christian. Your faith and your sanctification are never complete in this life. Even the Apostle Paul said that his faith was not complete. You are a failing Christian if you're content to stay where you are. So we need to learn more. We need to grow more. We need to be more conformed to the image of Christ. And friends, you are not going to do that by neglecting the means. And the means that this is accomplished is by God's Word. It's better knowledge of Christ through the Word. Now, recently, there was a, just, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a visitor that made a very, very strange comment as she was leaving the building. She said that she brought her friend to church who is not, or is just a new Christian, uh, her friend who is just a new Christian, and she said, I brought her to your church because I knew that your church gets more into the Word than my church. Now, is that a sad commentary on her church? She wouldn't take a new convert to the faith to her church because there wasn't enough of the Word of God there. The Word of God is the only way that we perfect our faith. So you need to ask yourself every day, where is your faith? What stage are you in your faith? Have you progressed in your faith? Are you still in the baby stage? Are you perpetually babbling about things that you know nothing about? Do you know that you're saved? And if you say, yes, I know that I'm saved, then I'll just have to ask you, how do you know? Are you quite sure that you're saved? How do you know that you're saved? Now, I want you to know that increasing faith is the way that Christ is infused into your life. Increasing faith is the way that His thoughts become your thoughts. Increasing faith is the way that Christ's judgments become your judgments. Increasing faith is the way that His conduct becomes your conduct. Increasing faith is the way that you comprehend the faith. And increasing faith only comes through the knowledge of the Word. And so if you say, well, I don't really need to increase my knowledge of the Word, and you're satisfied where you are, then you are satisfied to have little of Christ. You're a kindergarten student, still in the first grade, you're still in the coloring books, and you don't know how valuable it is to graduate with an upper learning degree. 
Now, do you know what I'm thankful for? I, I'm thankful that our people can sit in a Roman, the Romans class on Wednesday evenings and we can discuss details. We can dig into the Word of God. No, I thought this was quite interesting. I mentioned it, I think, last week or the week before, that uh, we had a visitor one night who came and was checking us out. And this visitor had been to Bible studies. In fact, this visitor taught Bible studies in his own church. And we were discussing in the class justification. We were talking about its implications concerning the imputed righteousness of Christ. And he raised his hand, and paraphrasing, he said, shouldn't we just... Forget about all this discussion and focus on the simple evangelistic message. And folks, that encapsulated the problem in a way that I could spend three weeks trying to explain. That's the entire problem right there. It's this attitude, it's the weak attitude that we know enough that we are saved. And so let's just forget the, dis the discussion and let's concentrate on the elementary parts of the gospel. And I'll tell you, that attitude is not how you grow in the faith. That's not Paul. Have we forgotten what Jesus said in the commission of the gospel? Christ said, make disciples. Have you thought about what that means? Make disciples? What is that? What is a disciple? Well, the very word itself means learner. To learn. It means to adhere. To stick to something. That's what the word means. Now, Jesus said this. He said, we must Disciple people and they must learn to obey all things that he has commanded. And these New Testament letters of Paul and others are the fulfillment of that commission as they perfect our faith. This is the explanation of that comprehensiveness of Christianity. But I believe if Paul was to visit most churches, he would say, I think that I need to decrease some deficiencies in your faith. I need to fill out your faith. I need to complete it. I need to perfect it. But then I think that he would stop and say, Oh, but haven't I already tried this? Haven't I already done that? Why aren't you reading? Why aren't you discussing? Why aren't you studying the deeper doctrines of the faith? Or as Hebrews says, Are you still stuck in the elementary parts of the gospel? And so you say to him, You would say, Oh, but I believe. I, I believe that I'm saved. Well, we're not talking about that. And Paul's not talking about that here. The problem is, there's too much that they didn't know. To know that you're saved is just the bare beginning of what Christianity is. And then think about this. Maybe we can say the Thessalonians had an excuse. They don't have anybody to teach them. The Apostle Paul, who founded the church, couldn't be there. He's gone. They don't have libraries. And they don't have commentaries. They don't have theological journals to read. They don't even have a completed New Testament. First Thessalonians is one of Paul's earliest letters. So they don't even have the other letters that Paul wrote to churches where he explains doctrine. So that may be their excuse. But the question is, what's yours? What have you studied? What do you know? Why aren't you in those rooms on Wednesday nights in the Bible studies? Why aren't you there? We should have so many Bereans in those classes that we need to split both the men's and the women's classes to make room for all the, the disciples of Christ that should be there. We should need to divide rather than putting the two classes together to learn. But I've known this, that the more onus that we put on individuals to study the Word of God, it's hard to maintain the numbers. 
And so our people become discontent with the methodology. How are you going about teaching us? And they're more concerned about that than they are the fellowship of the Word of God to sit in the class to learn about Jesus Christ, to increase their knowledge of God. As pastor, I don't like to stand here today and, and, and to beat on you, but I'm very concerned about this when I see that attendance of our Bible studies shrink. And I'm concerned when our leadership doesn't make a good effort to be at those studies. What, what, what are we going to teach others that we haven't, if we haven't learned it ourselves? Who wants to perfect their faith? That's the question. You know, before I became pastor, uh, this is a long time ago, I ran a business. I was as busy as any person in the room, but I studied and I learned, and I was in church at every opportunity. I worked during the day. I did invoices and accounting at night. I did payroll at night, but I studied and I was in church. And my family was in church. And we didn't take time for other things. Other things weren't done on church time because that's God's time. And we just didn't do it. And that is a conscious choice that we made. We will not do it because we know it will make us deficient in our faith. So we're going to obey God. And we'll be where God wants us to be on God's time. Now that's not bragging, that's just facts. And I I hesitate to use personal examples, but sometimes you need to. And the Apostle Paul, when he said, I labored night and day for you, that's not bragging, it's the facts. That's what he did. This, he says, is expected of Christians. You must grow, and you won't, unless you learn to prioritize your time for Jesus Christ. Is it too much? Is that too much to ask? Can you take me to the Bible and prove this is too much for for the apostle or a preacher to ask? Does Paul spend time here discussing all the excuses that people can have? Certainly they have excuses, so do we. Paul doesn't talk about excuses because deficiencies in our faith are inexcusable. Am I perfect? Am I perfect in this? No, I'm not. And that's because all of us, even the preacher, needs to grow. Hopefully I'm growing. Hopefully I'm being sanctified. Now you know it was Paul who said, I haven't yet arrived. The, the, the great apostle says that I need to push further in my knowledge of Christ. Now can you just listen for a minute, minute to what he wrote? Did you know he said this and do you know what this means? He says in Philippians 3.12, Not as though I had already attained or were already perfect. Now you see that? He says, I am not perfect. Well, what did he mean by that? Did he mean, I'm not sinless? Well, of course, he wasn't, and uh, that would be a contradiction to say that he was because of his many teachings on sanctification and, and his personal struggles. Now, what he has in mind here is his perfection in the knowledge of Christ. This is what he constantly strived for. Now, listen as he goes on to explain and encourages us to do the same. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, But I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many be perfect, be thus minded. And if anything, in anything, ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. 
Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which so walk as ye have us for an example. Might I read this graceful comment by the old Puritan Matthew Poole, who wrote, By an elegant anticipation and correction, lest any should conclude from what he had written, as if he were now arrived at the height he aimed at in the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, and a full and perfect stature in that body, or almost at the very pitch, he doth here make a modest confession of his not-attainment, whatever false apostles might pretend to, but of his earnest desire and utmost endeavor to be raised to the complete holiness he was designed for. And that is so marvelously true and well stated. How will we attain the holiness that we are designed to? How will we increase that knowledge of Christ? How is he going to do that? And how will we when we're certain that our knowledge is far less accomplished than Paul's. Can we seriously believe that we are sanctified if we say that we don't need to increase our knowledge of Jesus Christ? Now, according to Paul, this is Christian accountability. Did he feel that he was asking too much? Is he embarrassed to tell them this? Is he embarrassed to say, you've got some very serious thinking to do over some stuff before you tell me that you are spiritual people? So he says, be disciples, be learners, grow in your faith. By all means, use all diligence, perfect, complete, grow in your faith. And so he asks, well, how do you do that? How do you do that? What is faith? Now, that's just an elementary question, isn't it? What is faith? How do you find faith? Faith is the ability to trust the truth. Now, I love that definition. Faith is the ability to trust the truth. Now, the world, of course, believes in relative truth. But how can relative truth be trusted? That's a moving target. Changes depending on the person, the time, and the place. How do you have faith in something that doesn't have substance? No, truth must be concrete. Truth must be objective. Faith's not mystical. Faith in that is not mystical, but it would be if it changed. If truth can change tomorrow, then what confidence can you have in it? This is why we need to understand, or the reason that we can't understand why Jesus said, My words are forever settled in heaven. And he said, There is not one jot and there is not one tittle of the law that will pass away until all of it is fulfilled. Now that's a very interesting expression to use. Not, uh, he says, a jot and the tittle. A jot and a tittle. They're not going to pass away. Now the jot, that's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The tittle is a little bark that's used to distinguish letters. Now if you, if you could read Chinese or one of the oriental languages... Uh, you understand that, just as I understand it at least, uh, a, a small mark completely changes the meaning of a character. And Jesus is telling us that the Word of God is so precise that it's preserved and fulfilled down to the very smallest detail. And the idea is that you can have confidence in God because God is paying attention to details. There's nothing that slips by Him. Faith is the ability to trust the truth, and that truth is written down in heaven, and it will never change. All truth comes from God in heaven. God is the source of truth. And whatever you hear from God is nothing but truth. So faith isn't mystical. It's simply to trust that unchanging truth of God's word.
So you ask, then what do we do to increase our faith? Is it possible that, well, we can increase our faith by just believing it harder? Do we just believe harder? Can you put more oomph into this thing and just believe what you hear harder? You know, John MacArthur asked that question. He said, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to believe harder? That doesn't compute. How do you believe harder? No, you don't believe harder. What you do is you increase your access to truth. You increase the access to truth. You find out more what is truth. What are those things that are in truth, that are truth? And so to increase your faith is to complete it. It's to comprehend more of the truth, to move up and to expand it beyond the elementary facts of the gospel. Now there are some who refer to the teachings of our church as confounded complexities. It's as if the Bible is a very simple thing. Anybody should be able to understand it. That the Bible is all surface stuff. And so if you find something in the Bible that is complex, then it must be because you've added something that's untrue. You know, I've heard some people say, oh, the sermons are too hard. Now, I admit for some they may be too hard. Maybe you don't understand what I'm trying to get across to you. I don't think this sermon's very hard. But I ask this question, what are we trying to do here? What is it that we're trying to do with the Word? Isn't it this? Aren't we trying to move people up in their understanding of God? Aren't we trying to get them up off that very basic level that they know they're saved, that they have believed in Christ? Now don't we want them to know more of who this Christ is that they believe? What did He do? How did He live? What did He teach? How is it truly to be like Christ? And so when you, when you come here, we hope to move you up beyond just a little bit of taste of truth. We want you to comprehend how God works. A few weeks ago, when the Korean Baptist Church had their baptism in our building, the pastor prayed in Korean, and I didn't understand a word he said. Then he called on his associate to pray, and his associate prayed in English. And I heard him as he prayed that he prayed about the imputed righteousness of Christ. And I thought, that is excellent. That's not a prayer that you're going to hear in most churches. And then I thought, well, what if I kept listening to that pastor as he preached? And what if I followed along in my Bible as he read and preached in Korean? And what if I kept attending and my, I immersed myself in the language that they use every day? Would I begin to understand? Well, the things that I don't understand today, I would understand by continually hearing and building on it. And I think that all of you are intelligent enough to know that it works the same way with the Bible. You keep listening, and what you don't understand today, you will understand. And the most important thing about what you hear is this thing that we want you to understand is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is the most important thing you could ever learn, to learn about Jesus Christ. Who is He? What did He do? Knowing Him, growing in holiness, that's the very prize that Paul said he wanted more than anything. So it comes down to this. You can't live the Christian life and put into practice what you don't know. Many people believe that the doctrines of God's Word have no practical application for everyday life. They don't know how to put in practice the knowledge that they learned. They, they don't know how to use that. And that's the whole point of what we're talking about. They just don't know. And yet we read these New Testament letters of Paul, and what are they filled with? 
doctrine and doctrine and more doctrine. The doctrine of the Trinity, that's hard to understand. The doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of sanctification, of election, of glorification, of the church, of baptism, of communion, of church order, of pastoral qualifications, and on and on we can go. All of this is very practical for Paul. Why? Because he said you must learn the word of God for Christ to dwell in you richly. So how practical is that? Well, it's practical enough that you can't be like Christ without it. Now, it's interesting that when the term Christian was first used, that this is the notation that goes with it. It's in Acts 11, 26. Verse 25 says, Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And then verse 26, And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were first called Christians, or called Christians first in Antioch. For a year they assembled and they taught. Now if you just read a few verses before this, they preached the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you think for a year they just went over the same information again and again? That they went back over repentance and faith? That's what they talked about for a year? No, Paul didn't want to return to Thessalonica to preach repentance and faith. He wanted to build on the faith that he had. And so after, they had, and so after hearing and learning for a year, it says they were called Christians. Now another interesting verse in Acts, Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Peter and John were unlearned and ignorant men as far as being trained for the ministry of the Jews' religion. So what is it that made them different? And what made them preach with boldness? They had been with Jesus. Do you know how that you can be with Jesus in this day and hour? How can you be with Jesus? Folks, that is what immersion in the Word of God is. That's how you are with Jesus. That's what it means to be with Jesus. And so we see in this short phrase in Paul's petition in verse 10 that he wants to perfect what's lacking in their faith. Just a very short phrase, just a petite petition. But this is a mighty significant thing if it should become a part of their lives. What is lacking in their faith? Well, we're going to get into that in chapter 4. The lack of they had in their faith was the ability for faith to rule their lives and to make their lives virtuous. And you take that back to what Matthew Poole commented on in the Philippians passage. He said that Paul wanted to attain the holiness that he was designed for. Do you get that? As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are designed for holiness. And that means that faith must regulate everything that you do. You are designed. Your salvation is designed for you to be like Christ. And if you are not like Christ, you are a failed Christian. In some degree, whatever area that you lack, you have failed to be like Jesus Christ. Now the first part of this triumvirate of the Christian life is this, to have an ever-increasing faith. It's to move onward and upward in our Christ-likeness. What would Paul say about your faith? 
If he came and talked to you today, what would he say about your faith? Are you growing? Are you content where you are? Or are you never content unless every day brings you closer to Jesus Christ? Folks, this is the difference that we're talking about. What do you know about the Christian faith? And when you tell me that, when you answer that question, what do you know about the Christian faith, then I can tell you how much you're like Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today. We confess, Lord, that we don't know all we need to know. That we haven't learned, that we haven't spent the time that's necessary for us to grow in our faith as you would have us to grow. And Lord, we pray that on this day as we give thanksgiving for all the wonderful things that you do for us, that we would see there are some things we've yet to lay hold on. There are so many good things that you have for us that could be a part of our lives and make us strong Christians and, and to be examples to others, to be a testimony and to live as you would have us to live. There's so much more that we would know if we would just surrender ourselves to this ever-increasing faith, to grow in faith, to be like you. That's what we most desperately need. We give you thanksgiving, Lord, that you have provided everything that we need. It's all in your word. And all we need do is to eat of your word. Spiritually, to eat of your word is physically, we'll take this food today for our nourishment. We must have this if we are going to grow in our faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Help us today, Lord, to surrender ourselves as your people to this, to become like Jesus. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org